Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Mrs. America. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. This week on Still Watching Mrs. America, we are discussing episode six, Jill, uh, centered on Elizabeth Banks' character, Jill Ruckel's house. We will have a conversation with Elizabeth Banks inside the episode as well. But if you're just joining us for the first time, what we love to do when still watching is just break down the latest episode of a TV show that we're obsessed with. Right now, we are all Mrs. America all the time. We have finished Westworld. We are just on the Mrs. America train until the end of May. Um, and I did want to like uh, take this opportunity to make the announcement that we're going to take the summer off of still watching. So we're going to watch the end of uh, the season of Mrs. America, and then we're going to take a little hiatus. So lap it up, savor it, uh, and then uh, have time to miss us over the summer, uh, and then we'll be back. Yeah. So. I've decided to run for, for Congress. So, um, right. This is, this is a uh, Richard's big moment. So, um, vote Lawson. I will be sending out some buttons and some straw boaters and we will look forward to your, uh, political primacy. Friend. My platform's a um, nightmare, right. by the way. It's just, it's, it's horrible. So, but you know, <laughs> what can you do? Um, all right. So we are, we, we kick off this episode. This is, we are in 1975. So firmly in the middle of the decades, February. Um, and Jill Ruckel's house, as you know, we've met her earlier in the season. She is sort of the token conservative member of, uh, you know, this feminist movement, uh, as far as she's represented on the show. And, you know, something to know about the Ruckel's houses. Um, she and her husband is that, you know, they worked for Nixon. Her husband very famously, uh, resigned under Nixon as this like huge form of, um, political protest. And then she also, uh, resigned from the White House several months later, the Nixon White House. So they were sort of, um, uh, figures in the Watergate scandal. Um, 
and their principles around that were sort of uh, forever attached to their names. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that when you say conservative, um, they certainly were by any standard. Um, but that word did have different connotations until almost just about this crux point that we see in this episode, which I think is what part of what makes it so interesting. Yeah. So this is, you know, Jill and Bill Ruckel's house is, 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 you know, it's fun to watch because it's two actors. I really like Elizabeth Banks and Josh Hamilton. Uh, Josh Hamilton is our, our token husband of the episode. Um, big fan of Josh Hamilton. Um, they're fun to watch, but I think, you know, I, I said last week that this is my favorite episode of the season. Uh, and I love, I love all the episodes, but I think this one is the most interesting to me because, that idea that it's not just like a personal blow for Jill, which it is. And I think Elizabeth Banks does a great job with that, but it is, we're watching the death of the conserv, uh, a kind of conservative party. And there's a couple tra, there's several tragedies that, um, Mrs. America covers, but certainly one of them is the way in which, um, Phyllis Schlafly and her coterie, um, really changed and warped the right wing um, movement into something that is increasingly and increasingly, and I would say even more increasingly now uh, hard to communicate with. Like that's, that's what Jill Ruckel's house represents is a conservative party that can agree with the left on certain issues and disagree on other issues, but have an amicable back and forth. And what Phyllis Schlafly and her coder and like, especially the coalition that she's building in this episode um, represent is a rigid, uncompromising uh, wing of the party that will not uh, reach across the aisle for anything. Um, rigid, uncompromising and on a, a number of social issues much further to the right. Exactly. You exactly. know, and, yeah. and wrapped up in a determined religious um, righteousness, not that American politics have not, wrap themselves in the flag of religion uh, since time immemorial. But um, here you see it begin to be more pronounced, more antagonistic, more shut off from, like you said, um, a kind of centrist debate, if such a thing really was possible or productive or whatever. But, um, you know, and I think that a lot of people, when they think about this, what was happening right in the mid seventies with all of this, Reagan is obviously in the picture, but he was a movie star, or at least a movie actor. And, um, you know, he had this kind of genie, you know, sort of fatherly presence when he gave speeches. And, um, I think that his legacy for some can be lost in terms of his ties to exactly this stuff, to the Schlafly's, the Falwell's, all this thing. And he really was, uh, the, um, the thing that got them in the vessel through which they, you know, inserted themselves all over into American politics. Um, so if for you, Reagan's legacy was not tainted enough already <laughs> because of what he did to the economy and to people with AIDS and lots of other things. Um, here's another reason why he um, was not quite the president that he is sometimes venerated to be. The, you know, we should be fair and say um, that, 
there is what I like, you know, so, so there's a few things going on in this episode as in, with any episode of Mrs. America. Uh, you've got whatever's going out in the Ruckle, Ruckle house, Ruckle's house house. Um, you've got Phyllis Schlafly meeting, uh, Laurie Beth Hobbs and sort of really, uh, you know, gathering these religious extremists under her wing. Um, and then you've got this, you know, um, scandal that affects the left wing of the party, which is the way in which uh, secretaries, a sex scandal um, in the Capitol and, and the way in which uh, the secretaries are treated. And you see in the form of Bella, uh, you know, uh, Margot Martindale's character, Bella Abzug, who is the center of next week's episode, you see the way in which she uh, is willing to make some moral compromises for what she sees as the good of her party. You know what I mean? You've got Shirley Chisholm standing up for these women and you've got Bella saying like, well, you know, what our men do is, is no worse than what the men in the other, on the other side of the aisle do. So we can't afford to lose them as allies. So we can't call them out for the way in which they've treated these women who work for them. And eerily, this is exactly what is happening right now in a, in a national scale, uh, with our own presidential, um, election, right? Because there, are, there is, you know, a conversation around sexual, sexual, uh, misconduct allegations, um, affecting Joe Biden. And the question, uh, that the left is facing is like, okay, do we believe women? Do we believe this accusation? And let's say we do. Let's say, let's say all things being equal, this is true. And what Trump has done is true. Um, you know, which is the lesser of two evils? And is that really something that sits well with us in any way? You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, it is really similar. And, um, you know, uh, I, I don't think this show is, uh, thankfully, it's not completely skewed toward, um, favoring the left side of things and criticizing the right. Like they're showing that the left certainly had its own compromises and problems and all that. Um, granted, it's, I think, a little less scary, uh, in a bigger sense than the stuff happening on the right. But yeah, I think it's really crucial to, to have that, um, dynamic shown in this episode or any episode of this show. That um, because it really does speak so much to the here and now, right? So the Hayes scandal, which was you know a real thing that happened, um, in like most everything this episode is a real thing that happened, except for I would say the conversation between um, Jill and Phyllis at the bar, which is fictionalized, right? But almost everything else is like you know he's pretty closely to real things that happen. And um, the Hayes scandal, where we see Shirley Chisholm standing up for these women and Bella Abzug unwilling to. And it all sort of coming down to nothing and, and it ends in this really depressing at a prayer breakfast of all places with this really depressing, like political cartoon that these men are sort of guffawing over. And it's just like, you know, what are these women to these men, even the men in their own party sort of thing. So, um, I think, I think that's a really smart thing to include in this episode. And I think it, it gives the show uh credibility for the arguments you know uh, throughout the season i think it's done a good job of showing the cracks in the left wing of the party and showing the problems within the feminist movement um and that makes its damning critiques of the right 
that much more credible because it's not, it's not just a blind attack on one side. Do you know what I mean? Right. Exactly. You know, I, I, because if it were the other thing, it would be so easy to just kind of not, um, you know, contend with any of it. It would just be like, oh, well, it's, you know, clearly a biased thing. So who cares what any of it says, you know, but this way they're like, no, this is a, a complicated issue with mistakes and whatnot on both sides. And here's that portrait. Granted, I do think, I think especially uh, as the season goes on, this episode being a major one, we are seeing an, a certain editorializing, particularly about Phyllis Schlafly. But, oh, you know, yeah. I think a lot of people on both sides of things would, at this point, probably say that some of the stuff she said or believed, you know, or or maybe pretended to believe um, were pretty reprehensible. So um, I'm, I, I think that like that, that's, it's okay if the show is making that ultimate um, summation, I guess. So what's interesting for me <laughs> is that, so this is 1975. This was the international women's year. Um, something that the United Nations declared. That is not something I've ever heard of. Um, I did not know that was a thing, but apparently we got a whole year in 1975. Um, and so Gerald Ford creates this national commission to honor women and encourage the ratification of the ERA. And Jill Ruckelshaus is made the chairwoman of that, uh, commission. Um, and she's got this great quip at the beginning of the episode, you know, where this like snarky little White House guys like a uh, pretty big promotion. And she's like, yeah, and yet unpaid with that just sort of like, almost um what's her character's name in in the hunger games effie trinket right uh that yeah. almost like trinket-esque sort of like g- trilling glib uh saying something really uh sharp with a smile uh delivery that elizabeth banks is so good at um that i think is just and, and it's it's how you kick off the episode it just gives you the tone for the whole episode that she's just saying this like really sharp thing but with just like the widest smile on her face you know yeah, I mean, I think that, like, it's a really interesting performance from Banks because, you know, I, I, I don't, her political ideology, from what I know of it, does not really align with, um, Ruckel's houses. Um, and yet, you know, there is a, a kind of common concern probably in terms of, like, the ERA issue. Um, but it's also, like, an, an interesting opportunity for Banks who, you know, I think we tend to think of as comedy. Um, she's obviously moved into directing of late with Pitch Perfect and Charlie's Angels. Um, but we don't necessarily always get to see her do something like this, which is kind of exciting, let alone to like have a pretty long, just two hander scene with Kate Blanchett. Um, and I think she really holds her own. I think that it's a, it's a tricky line to tread. I mean, Blanchett has, I think a clear mandate in terms of the, the lens of hindsight, like she's playing a human being, but she, we know that that human being was pretty bad. Um, Whereas Ruckel's house is a different thing. She worked at the Nixon administration, but she also left the Nixon administration. And she was a Republican at a time when Republicans were doing bad things, but she wasn't one of those Republicans, you know? So it's a very gray area kind of thing. And I think Banks finds a way through it without lionizing her or, you know, making her a sort of nightmare. Like it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's nuanced, which is appreciated. Right. And this idea that like, in order to get things accomplished, um, at least from Jill's point of view, Jill's approach to getting things accomplished is that sort of like smiling, playing a part, letting a disgusting congressperson or senator like put a hand on her, 
but knowing ultimately that she's going to get her way. And is that, is that something that people should put up with? No, that is not something anyone should put up with. It's not something women should put up with, but it is how Jill has figured out how to navigate these political waters and done so very successfully for, for a good, a uh, good long time. So, um, so yeah. So, and then let's talk about the dynamic at home. You know, I, I've been talking about these husbands as they show up and this is one of my favorite. There's just a, such an immediate, easy chemistry between these two very smart, very successful people. There's such intellectual respect they have a, an unusual household and then, you know, for the time maybe in that some of the kids aren't hers. Some of them are. There are a lot of kids. And you like him so much. You love her husband so much. Or I do at least because he's played by Josh Hamilton. And yet there are these just these little ways in which he's just letting her down. I mean, in, in a big way in this ask where he basically like asks her to stay back from the convention. But just sort of like the the phone rings or the doorbell rings or whatever, or someone needs to be run to tennis or whatever. And and she's just sort of like, well, okay, I guess I'll do it. You know, like, is this, is this a house of equals or is it kind of not? It's a house of more equals than maybe some others in Washington, um, but not entirely as we find out. Well, yeah, it's on the scale of things, you know, with right. Shoffley's situation and toward one end, not at the, not all the way at the end. Um, but, you know, and, and, and it's just, you know, it's, it's an interesting, kind of graph that this show is plotting of where people like you know how, how kind of broad that spectrum was how how kind of long it was crossing political parties all that um so yeah i think i think it's necessary to see that like there were people in the republican party of the day who were you know in their own sort of uh conversation with the women's lib movement um it wasn't all just you know the binary of one political party was for, the other was against. Um, and, and to feel that loss toward the end of the episode, when you, cause we already know what happens, you know, we know that Reagan, um, does come in and with him comes this whole kind of far right veer. Um, so we know that this is a losing thing and to watch, uh, Ruckles House kind of try to basically that dawns on her that maybe this thing is being, taken from them um it's 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 crazy i mean to, to look at a huge political shift um through the lens of just like of one person essentially um yeah her, like her embodying that and and like i i watched this episode multiple times and i cry every time at the very end when you have jill jill jill's devil's devastation over like what they whoever that they you decide are what they've done to her party, something that she cared so much about and felt and believed so much in to see it warped into this other thing um, is devastating for her. Right. So, and, and I think devastating to watch uh, despite the fact that, you know, I'm extremely liberal and have, you know, never identified often with, with an on-screen Republican. This is a case where, you know, um, I definitely have. So, yeah. Um, so we should talk about the, the, the Republican National Convention that we see and maybe some contacts for people, um, who might not know. But this was in Kansas City, the Republican National Convention, and it, it was just like a crazy time, um, that was happening. This is a, 
I, I was reading some, some like oral histories of it because we, we, we've talked in the, in the past two election, presidential election cycles. I've heard more pundits than ever talking about a contested convention. This idea that like, let's say in, um, 2016, if like Bernie and Clinton had been so close, it would have been a contested convention. Or again, uh, this year, if Biden and Sanders had been so close, it would have been a contested convention, which means, you know, the candidates have to duke it out at the convention for the nomination. Um, and that's something that like political pundits want because it's like exciting for them to cover, but like probably not great as we see in this instance, like for the party. So what you, uh, you know, I was, uh, so this is a, um, this is a quote um, from this long oral history that I read. Uh, I will find the source of it in a second. But um, this historian who wrote about the Reagan Reagan's nineteen seventy six campaign. Reagan was not successful in in you know seventy five seventy six. Uh, but this is sort of the beginning of his of his ascension, right? And uh, of the of the convention, this author Craig Shirley wrote it was riotous. It went on for hours. There were melees in the hall. A Ford delegate who broke her leg in the chaos was kept from the hospital for fear that her replacement would vote for Reagan. She suffered in a brace made from convention programs until the voting was over. On Monday morning at the start of the proceedings, a 55-foot-tall inflatable elephant meant to welcome the delegates took flight in downtown Kansas City, only to drift into a nearby nylon wiring, ripping its stomach apart. It was an apt metaphor for what was happening to the party that year. Um... And, you know, well, yeah, Paul, I mean, Paul, it is interesting. Paul Manafort, Sorry. like Paul Manafort was leading the Ford floor operation. Paul Manafort, who is now a convicted felon. Uh, so like this, this was what was going on, on in Jill's party in this episode, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, Manafort Rumsfeld is mentioned a lot in this episode. Dick Cheney, we see in this episode, like right. these people have been at this for a long time. And granted, right. some of them were more Ford guys, more, some of them were Reagan, but like they all seem to have found a common mission later in life, I guess. Um, right. but it is interesting to think about this moment in time where, where, you know, Ford kind of steps in when Reagan resigns and the party was in chaos. It was a huge scandal. Would they ever recover? blah 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 like and then obviously the, the people on the far right saw an opportunity to seize control of the party that a party that was flailing and, and 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 injured essentially um and then on the left side of things like carter goes in and serves one term and then we have eight years of reagan and so they did win ultimately you know and i think the ford republicans eventually came back to the fold and um you know with the incredible you know seizing of power uh recognized a wealth of opportunity there and uh yeah so this is really the the catalyst point um but it wasn't just a catalyst point for something that would come later uh, things were happening in real time um which is what i think you see with jill um you know basically sitting on the floor looking at an, a speech from just four years prior right. and realizing that that world is completely gone already the um the last part of that oral history is, is Lou Cannon. Um, so, so like what we see, right, is the episode opens and Jill is very comfortable in her uh, like alliance with 
President Ford and the First Lady Betty Ford and their support of the ERA. And she's like, I, I'm in with the Fords and the Fords see things my way. And so things are very, you know, she like, she opens the episode with like Phyllis picketing outside the White House in, in a sort of like a, a, a low turnout for Phyllis, right? This spurs Phyllis to make the moves that she makes in this episode. And Jill is just sitting in her car, sort of like looking on sort of, smirking at Phyllis as she gives an interview because Phyllis is very, but because Jill is very comfortable in the powerful support that she has. But what happens with the Reagan threat um, is that the Ford campaign makes all these concessions in order to uh, secure the nomination. And so this is the last thing from that oral history. Luke Cannon says the four people just gave the Reagan people the platform. I was in some of those platform committee hearings and the four people were under instructions. Don't get into a fight. If they want this on abortion, if they want that on defense, give it to them. So there's a, there's a slight victory for the ERA in this episode in that the forward party does not wind up conceding, um, the ERA stance, but they do wind up conceding on abortion which is devastating to Jill. Um, and it's interesting to, I mean, like to even consider a time when abortion had, uh, you know, bipartisan support is astounding to me. And it wasn't oh, it's that anathema. long ago. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's, yeah. it's crazy. And because that has become one of the central enduring wedge issues, um, right. between, um, you know, political parties, um, and it just goes to show you how, you know, what was the terminology was silent majority. They, they weren't. They're, they're just a very influential group of people um, in terms of the far right evangelical kind of stuff. And that's not to say that all evangelical Christians are are sort of, are, are wrapped up in this, but the ones like Falwell who were um, active in this particular political movement, um, you know, it just it just took that that few people to completely change the way uh, not only one political party saw itself, but how a country saw a major issue. You know, um, to think that just 40-something years ago, there was Republican support for women's choice, um, and that that kind of went away with, you know, comp- compromise, uh, concessions um, yeah. to people. It's, 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 it's a bitter pill, yeah, for sure. So the, the face of that, um, you know, the, 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 the religious right pushing on, um, the, the Ford campaign, um, in this episode is this character, uh, real life figure, Lottie Beth Hobbs, uh, who is introduced in this, I think, stunning scene where the Eagles go to meet with Lottie Beth to, uh, you know, get her on their team. Uh, Phyllis has, has been motivated to sort of tap into, uh, religious leaders and uh, absorb their uh, concerns in order to make her coalition stronger. And Lottie Beth Hobbs is, is, is a character who, you know, especially I would say we're supposed to register in Sarah Paulson's character, uh, a, a deep discomfort in, and um, I don't know, maybe disgust is the word uh, with the, uh, f- I don't know, fervor. Um, violent fervor of, of this woman and her beliefs. And, uh, you know, as, as beautifully represented by the, that speech she gives where she like rips the petals off of a rose. Um, how, what did you, I, I loved this scene, um, as uncomfortable as it is to watch. What, what did you, what did you make of it? 
Well, I mean, as a kind of example of the dangerous bedfellows, supposedly more moderate conservatives made in order to um, gain political clout, uh, it's pretty horrifying, you know, and yeah. but also very telling. And I think that this episode really is when you start to see the rot take over Phyllis Schlafly. Um, yep. Maybe it was always there, but here we see her. I mean, I think later when she goes hunting um, with Lottie, um, Lottie Beth, um, to prove her mettle, you know, as a, I don't know what the identifying thing would be, a good country woman or something, I don't know. But like, and she puts the deer down, and then we see her not too much later, like basically sending her her gay son away, you know, and and just yeah. like shoot, shooting, you know, killing the innocents, smothering them in the crib or whatever, to in order to streamline her kind of, and harden her herself into um, something that can get something through and get, you know gain more power. And I mean, it's a it's a kind of docu horror kind of thing. Um, yeah, and I think that to do that to communicate all of that in uh, especially in the, in the first scene uh with Lottie Beth that's just people sitting in a room and talking um politely for the most part um i think is is that's really effectively done yeah so the actress who plays Lottie Beth Hobbs is Cindy Drummond i don't think i've ever seen i'm looking through a cv i don't think i've ever seen her in anything you know she's on the tv series the unicorn um and then she's just sort of had parts here and there maybe she's a theater actress i don't know her but i just think she's really incredible and scary in this role uh really really good stuff so that brings us i think to to sort of the last major thing i want to talk about i mean like we we will ruckles house is uh you know in consideration for um you know vice president maybe as you mentioned we get some familiar faces coming to the ruckles house household um I was, I was sort of reading up, you know, like, cause the inference is like, I don't know, there's a few inferences in this, like, that, that Jill is an unappealing package, uh, deal to come along with him. Or like, if you were being like really paranoid, you might wonder, uh, you know, did they do all of this to keep Jill away from the convention? I don't, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, but I was reading one report that said that, uh, one of the reasons that Ruckel's house was not, um, ultimately picked was because of his stance on reproductive rights. So because he was in favor of reproductive rights, he was not seen as a good running mate uh, in that, in that year. So, um, so that brings us to this uh, barroom scene, um, a fictionalized barroom scene between Phyllis and Jill, where Jill is trying to do her thing that we've seen work elsewhere, where she's just pouring the honey on, um, you know, being smart, being sharp, keeping her, you know, her stance on things, but, but just trying to like, you know, uh, catch more flies with honey. And then it's, it, it feels like it might work. Uh, and then, uh, you know, it takes a, takes a sharp turn. Jill lets that, like, that's that mask of hers slip. And then Phyllis comes in with one of those, like, you're just so angry. And I, like, want to scream. Um, Kate is so good. Blanchett's so good. Banks is so good. Uh, so let's talk about this scene, Richard, this two-hander. What do you, what did you think? It's great. I mean, it has the feel of, like, Pacino and 
De Niro talking in heat or something, you know, like, like this just yeah. great kind of tete a tete. Um, and I think that it's interesting because Jill does get some good lines in there, especially at the end when she's like, you think you can climb, you know, use men to climb on, but they're looking up your skirt the whole time. Um, oh, so good. but I think she says it in a moment of, she kind of loses control because I, th- I right. just watching her realize, oh my God, this woman is, there's no appealing to her. You know, th- right. th- this, this is a much more stolid and, um, force, a more sort of ideologically totalizing force than I thought I was dealing with. And I think in that scene, and I think it's really d- well done by Banks, you watch an entire side of things realize, oh, we're going to lose to these people because they will not budge. And so yeah. while she gets a couple good lines in, I think she leaves that knowing like, oh, we're fucked. Yeah. It's, um, or like there's no, there's no reasoning with these people or the arsenal that has served me so well in the past won't work here. Um, right. Exactly. And, And her personal arsenal, but I think also she realizes the bigger thing, the, the, the wheeling dealing, the kind of, you know, genial, let's make a, you know, thing happen kind of thing. That's not going to be as easy with people who are so, you know, that, that their, their ideology is not political. It's spiritual. It's, you know, it's something much deeper and harder to um, appeal to in a way. Yeah. Um, the uh, the line that she has in that scene where she talks about bringing uh, Dr. Spock, a noted uh, child psychologist on her honeymoon. That's a real quote that I read that Jill gave to like a newspaper. So like, though this account is, though this meeting between them, you know, we, we've talked before on, on other episodes how, Davi's sort of idea was let's explore the ways in which these famous feminists or, or uh, members of the women's movement interacted with Phyllis Schlafly. And so this is an invented one, right? Like we've had some real ones like the debate last week or the debate with Betty Friedan, uh, et cetera. But this is an invented encounter, not to say that these two women like never talked. Um, but that Davi is, is still trying to pepper in real life quotes um, at least from Jill, uh, to keep it in, in firmly anchored in this sort of attempt at historical fidelity, you know, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Um, uh, anything else we should mention before we go to our conversation with Elizabeth Banks? I guess the, the one thing to set us up for next week that we should keep our eye on. Um, well, two things. Um, one, I think it's worth noting in this scene between, uh, Jill and Phyllis that Jill basically accuses still when she's in play nice mode, but accuses Phyllis of cynically using the ERA fight to build a mailing list that will be valuable, invaluable to Reagan that Phyllis is making a, um, you know, building herself a, you know, a nest egg almost in, in the shape of this mailing list. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, that, you know, whether or not the, the mailing list is very literal, obviously, right. but I think it's also standing in for a bigger thing. You know, you're building a coalition, you're, you're not a coalition, you're building an, a, a movement, you know? Um, yeah. and, and, and I think the interesting thing is, was that Phyllis's strategy or did Jill just give it to her? You know, Ooh, yeah, um, good maybe question. it was both in a weird way. Um, but hearing yeah. someone else say it, she's like, yeah, this is about something else. Like, let me identify that. And then you see her, Phyllis, maybe once she realizes that, 
then she goes to confession. My son's a pervert. I'm going to kill this deer. I'm going to send him away to law school, <laughs> you know, all this stuff. Right. Then that's when she decides, okay, if I want to do this, I'm going to do it. Right. Yeah. So you see that as like a movement, like the scene where like Phyllis and John are at the piano last week where she's just like, you need to be more careful versus my son is a pervert and I did send him away. You see that as like a movement um, on Phyllis's part um, towards the religious right. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's, I think it's, you know, if someone like Jill Ruckel's house tells her, uh, you know, basically imbues her with power. Then she kind of realizes it and it's like, oh, okay, but if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. And I have, and if I'm going to get in bed with certain people, then I have to walk the walk. Um, right. You know, mm, and, and look, yeah. her son, John, like, is gay, but also is an arch conservative. And, you know, like, like he, he, he returned to the flock as much as he could. Um, but at this moment, she had to kind of decide whether she was going to kind of cleanse herself of, uh, her, you know, domestic sins or that surround her. Um, and, and she chose to, right. yes, do that. Yeah. Um, the other thing to keep an eye on is the fact that, uh, Bella is like approaching a run for Senate. So that's, that's like one of the reasons why Bella is unwilling to go hard on her male colleagues is that she is really hoping to win, um, an upcoming election herself. And so that's her focus. And, and we'll talk about that a bit more next week in the Bella episode. Um, but that's something that's on her mind. Um, yeah. And then we, uh, we have the scene where Phyllis is invited up to a hotel room uh, with these, uh, Republican men who say these disgusting things about women. And she just sort of accepts it smiles and nods along and it's it's really disturbing and then uh and then we get the the heartbreak of of jill when she's she's reading this line of her speech as you mentioned her speech from 72 what a beautiful morning to be a woman in the best possible time to be a republican woman and crying and that's where i cry and i don't even like i don't even know why because i've never been a republican woman myself but just the death the death of an ideology the death of of, uh, the death of, um, what do you call it? Um, civil discourse almost, you know, not to be over dramatic. So it's, I think this is a tremendous episode of television. Really, really good stuff. So, yeah. I mean, she's realizing like, oh, we're all going to be hardliners now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and the Ruckles house is, you know, like, um, her husband was the head of the EPA uh, b- before this and then after, again, after. And so, like, you know, they they stayed conservatives, but they also stayed staunchly centrist, if you want to call that, con- conservatives. Because um, you don't think of conservatives being in charge of the EPA also. Like, these are other things that I'm just like, what? Um, all right. So uh, created by us- Nixon. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let us go to our conversation with Elizabeth. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Thanks. 
So I, I have had so much fun finding out about Jill Ruckelshaus, who was a figure I knew absolutely zero about um, for this series. Were you uh, aware of her at all? No, not before I started. Not at all. And I really am only, I was only um, mildly proficient at the whole Nixon era top political game that had happened. And I had, you know, I had like, I knew about the Saturday Night Massacre and I sort of vaguely knew who was involved, but you know, the fact that her husband Bill was involved and just all that history was really fun to sort of read through again. And especially in this moment in time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. An interesting detail uh, that I thought of all that is that, um, so Bill resigns, you know, sort of famously in November and then she doesn't leave her post in the white house until March and I just think that's so mm-hmm. interesting. Like, do you, do you have any thoughts about what those months must have been like in the Ruckus House household of like her sticking around for more <laughs> months in her job? You know, I think that they, I, uh, who knows? I, of course, this is all um, conjecture on my part, but I can imagine because in studying their relationship, you know, they were together a really, really long time and, um, they, uh, they gave a joint, a couple joint interviews I was able to watch and you can just sense this deep, uh, respect that the two of them had for each other. And, um, and you just know that at that time for a woman to, be able to, to work outside of her house, you know, while raising kids and to be doing it at such a high level, you know, being, being part of these, uh, these committees, these staffs, like working the way that they did and so connected in the DC scene at that time that, um, it only benefited them as a family for her to be doing that. And he must've been very, very supportive. And so I, I think that her work was very important to her. And I hope that our, the episode that really features her, you know, puts that at the forefront of just how much passion she was bringing to it, despite the fact that I think she, like Bella Abbott's character in the piece, is one of the more practical people um, to work in the movement. You know, somebody who was like, we need alliances. And she was very, um, you know, she was just a, a, you know, she was someone who just kind of knew how the system works from the inside and, and knew that that was, that you had to work it from the inside. She certainly was not an outsider in this movement, um, total insider. And I think, uh, so for me, in my imagination, in that time period, um, he would have done what he knew was the right thing to do for him. And she would have done the thing that she knew was the right thing for her, which was to keep doing the very specific work that she was doing um, while that administration was still operating. Mm -hmm. Um, Because her goals didn't change, even though he, you know, even though Nixon was impeached. Davi uh, has described and, and all the women that I've talked to have described these dossiers essentially that they got um, on, on the women that they were playing. Um, was there anything in the information that you received that was especially helpful for you to access Jill as a character? <laughs> uh, I laugh because honestly, my biggest concern was the wig. <laughs> 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 um my biggest concern was that hair. She has specific hairstyle that has never been redone. Like no one wears <laughs> that hair now. Uh-huh. Uh, right. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Gloria Steinem's hair is like just, you know, it's long, pretty hair. Like people still wear that hair. 
uh, people still wear shags. Like, you know, she had, she had such a specific hairdo and I was terrified that we weren't going to be able to represent it properly. And I did, I think I had ended up having like six wig fittings. And I have to tell you the, the person who, who did hair on the show was, um, you know, they, this, this woman, Ann Morgan, and she won an Oscar this year. Um, and she's incredible. And I remember the day sitting in the hair and makeup trailer, putting on a dress and with a high neck, because we, uh, most of the photos that I saw of Jill Ruckel's house, she was very modestly dressed and very practically dressed. And she wore a lot of like higher collar things. And so we thought, okay, well, that'll be, that'll be a, a, a marker for me. And, um, they, I had the makeup on and we had done sort of some work on my nose and stuff to sort of give me a little bit more of her face shape. And then they put the wig on. And I remember everyone in the trailer being like, Oh my God. And I I felt it. I was like, here I am. (laughs) (laughs) I can finally be a part of the seventies and be in this piece. I mean, I truly, I did not feel her until I was in the wig. And, you know, every actor has a different thing. Some people, it's like, I need the sh- right shoes. And Tracy Ullman worked, worked really hard on, on Betty for Dan. Like, for me, it was that wig. It was the thing that finally put me into the piece. It's amazing to me watching the show and to think of the ideas of Republican and conservative being separate in this era when I just sort of align the two in my mind, um, my mm-hmm. whole life. And, you know... What was it like for you to access that time in the Republican movement and, and her relationship to her party? Right. You know, I'm, I'm sure I'm older than you just from the way you just spoke. Um, but <laughs> not, much, the, not much. I remember my childhood president really was Reagan, mm-hmm. right? He's the guy who is in office for the most, you know, for those formative elementary school years. And, um, I I recall it being way more bipartisan, you know, meaning that it was it was the institutions that were important. Individual uh, your individual ideas or ideology um, you could bring into a conversation, but at the end of the day, you had to work together with other people to get things done. And you know, in everyday life and in business, we do this all the time. And for um, I mean, for many reasons that are probably that I'm no expert on, but Vanity Fair has written many articles about, <laughs> we have become more and more divided and divisive and um, polarized in the political world. And it was not always like that. And one of the things I loved about playing this character was that I was going to be able to remind people that there's a different way to operate politically. And that um, that we do we do need to um, embrace you know the idea of like working across the aisle and um, and what I love about Jill is you know she goes to a lot of the meetings she helps the Democrats with with her Republican colleagues and she you know when she's appointed to a committee she makes sure that she brings along some of these other women. And, and for her, I think being a Republican, they, you are allowed to still believe um, in sort of larger ideas that weren't specific to your party. And, the, uh, and, and really what I, this brings up for me is that even in this political moment, and one of the things that Phyllis brought 
to bear on our politics was a small minority of people with a loud voice being able to make policy for an electorate that's actually very moderate. So Jill and her husband, pretty moderate. So it's not a controversial idea, and it is not a Republican idea, and it's not a Democratic idea that abortion should be legal in America, for instance. It's not, it's not that controversial in the electorate. Um, something like 90% of people think background checks on gun sales is a good idea. Not controversial in the overall electorate. People right now in this moment in time really think healthcare for all is a good idea or some version of healthcare that works for more Americans. Good idea. Not actually that controversial among the larger electorate. And so one that this is one of the things I loved being able to shine a light on when it came to playing Jill, this Republican who worked well across the aisle with her Democratic colleagues in government to get things done. I guess what I'm saying is we're being told that we're divided when really we're not that divided right. in the real in, right. in like out here in America. We actually all kind of have a hive mind about a lot of things. Yeah, there's this, um, you know, moment and I'm learning a lot um, about everything that was going on at the time, the, this, that this, uh, Republican convention was a, like, you know, a contested convention. It was so raucous and wild and crazy. Um, and the idea of Jill having to sit it out, uh, is, is maddening to watch. <laughs> There's this one thing, um, when she's on the phone, you know, it's sort of playing over the, the montage of the convention. And she says something like, you know, our party was the first to back the ERA since 1940. And, you know, like, we're going to hold that line. And the, you know, the, yeah. the light that the show is shining on this idea that the ERA was a bipartisan, popular concept until this fringe group got involved in it, you know? That's right. And it's important to remember that, like, the idea, like, feminism, or if you look it up in the dictionary, it has a really simple um, definition. And it's just about equity of opportunity for women, right? Equality of opportunity for women. Also, not a particularly controversial thing in in the larger sort of world. And yet, um, Phyllis was able to use wedge issues to make feminists out to be some sort of, you know, extreme idea, like as if, you know, just wanting equal pay was truly an extreme. Oh, there it's uh, like, she was able to color feminists as, um, as sort of extremists in the, in her time. And I think that that legacy colors feminism to this day. Absolutely. So many of the ideas and, um, you know, the, I don't know, the coalescing of the religious right and all the sort of stuff that you see happen in the show, you know, thinking about how that has only grown and continued and further divided us now uh, is incredible to watch. Yes. You know, it's really, it's frustrating right. and heartbreaking. <laughs> you know, so. And, you know, it's, it's, I, it's so interesting because we were saying that, um, I can't remember who said it, but I love this phrase, this, this idea we were all sitting around. It was like, you know, um, these women that were fighting for equality for women, they were fighting for Phyllis too. Like they were fight. We're still fighting for you. You're calling us names. You're screaming at us. You're root. You're, you're working against us. And you know, we're, we're still here trying to make the world better for you. 
And I find that so fascinating. And it, that's not the other side. The other side's not inclusive in the same way. And that's, that, that, I don't know why I'm a Democrat, I guess, but <laughs> I just think there should be more inclusiveness, more justice in the world, not less. Um, do you think that that, I mean, that idea of wanting to make space for everyone, um, do you think that informs the approach that the show has to find moments of empathy or at least um, insight into Phyllis and her home life and the struggles that she went through. I mean, it's been, you know, I don't even want to say it's controversial. I don't think it's controversial. I think it's just people, some people who have painted Phyllis Schlafly as a stone cold monster are, uh, you know, surprised to see the show find space to show some of her, her struggle uh, as well as her victory. Um, you know, what do you make of that approach to this story? Well, I think that you need to have depth on both sides. You're playing characters. I mean, if you were doing a, a portrait of, well, I want, I don't even want to think when you play bad guys, when you play villains in pieces of art, you want to explore what that villainy looks like and where it comes from and what's motivating it. You know, I find that in this episode where Phyllis, you know, I'm one of the few characters from our side of the aisle that gets to confront Phyllis. Um, in person. And I know for me, what really just struck me was how, uh, how unself-aware she was. And I think that's a problem for a lot of people in general. Um, she's just not that self-aware. She's got some blinders on, um, on many levels. And, you know, it, it, you see it with her blinders for a long time with her own son and then with her relationship with her husband and, her, you know, this idea that she was very ambitious woman under those circumstances, we're expected to basically stay home and raise all the kids. And do all, like, how do you um, procure what's, what's yours? And the other thing I think is what's interesting is these singular people. I don't know. They, I, I'm not sure they understand the ripple effect of what they're doing. You know, so many of us just live in our own little lives and, you know, we get up in the morning, we, we, eat a meal, we deal with our children, we make our calls, we eat another meal, we deal with something else, we eat another meal, we talk to friends and, and family, and we go to sleep. I mean, that's everyone's day. Yeah. <laughs> where, where do you, that's everyone's day. That's a villain's day as much as that's a hero's day. There are so many moments in the series that are, you know, ripped directly from from headlines, from articles, from from clips that we have. Um, I was delighted to find that yeah. line about like I took Dr. Spock on my honeymoon in a Washington Post article about uh, Jill Ruckel's house. Like that's a real thing that she said. Um, but yeah. then, but then you've got scenes like this bar scene between Phyllis and Jill, which you know Davi has to sort of invent to um, give these women this interaction. Um, what's yeah. the difference for you between approaching something that you know is a direct quote or you have video footage of, et cetera, versus um, you know this this barroom scene? Well, the real life, the the true things, the things we know to be true, just inform the things that we invent, mm -hmm. and right always. So, I mean, I always feel very lucky when I get to play someone who's real because you get you don't have to invent the entire backstory. You get to actually read about where this person's from, and 
you know, what their life was like and these quotes that they said. And, and you get to watch a video every now and then see photos of them interacting with their friends. And you know, she, she has a real warmth about her um, that I really enjoyed. And so those are, that's, that, that, those just become sort of the roots to everything else that you invent. Um, the, and then you use the rest of the toolbox that you use when you're performing any other kind of character that's fully invented. You just probably did the homework yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I feel really lucky that Davi did all the homework for me and just gave it to me in a packet. Nothing rang untrue for me, I guess is my point. So yeah. when you're building off a foundation of truth, what you invent inevitably feels a little more truthful. There's, uh, you know, there's a lot in this episode, of course, about exactly what you said before, Jill working the system from the inside, um, making nice with um, maybe people, uh, specifically men that she finds sort of personally repugnant, but are useful to her cause. Um, is this, I mean, not to get too personal with you, Elizabeth Banks, but is this, uh, you know, idea of making nice in order to, for the greater good in the end, is this something that you've had to do in your own life, in your own career? I don't think I'm alone in saying yes. I think most <laughs> women have figured out how, but it's something that many of the characters on the show are dealing with and understand. Most, I would say most every character is dealing with I mean, you have to, even Phil, Phyllis is dealing with that for sure in a lot of levels, and it's just about what the end goal is. Um, and And being aware of it. Like Jill is fully aware that that's what she's doing. And Phyllis is somehow thinks people care about what she's saying, you know, <laughs> that men actually like give a shit. Whereas Jill had her eyes open. They either understand that we all generally have a common enemy. How do we combat that together? Or there are women for whom that system very much works and they don't want it to change. And there are people that like change and there are people that hate change. And I think, you know, that's part of it too. There's some people that's like, there, this is good for me. I, I like the system. And then, you know, you talked before about, about watching footage of, of uh, William and Jill and, and their sort of very loving, easy chemistry. And you and Josh Hamilton, like, really capture that beautifully in this episode. Um, what, I mean, you know, you've, you've done this countless times, I'm sure, with other performers. But, you know, what work did you and Josh do to make sure that you, you captured that here? <laughs> That's a, that was a little bit of luck um, because he and I, I think we met the night before we started shooting. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So, so uh, we, you know, sometimes you really have to work to manufacture chemistry with someone and sometimes you don't. I will say we spent all of our offset, like once we were together, we spent all of our time together. Meaning if we went to craft services, we went together, you know, if we, had a down moment, we sat with each other and chatted. So we were, we, we have a, I mean, I have an insane amount of respect for him as an actor anyway. And it just went deeper once he showed up. And I think the same happened, you know, we were able to just sort of jump in, have this, you know, lovely mutual respect. And then kind of this excitement that we both knew it was going to, it was going to work like really quickly. We were like, Oh, this is going to be okay. It's going to be good. <laughs> we can joke with each other and we kind of get each other and, Oh, we know a couple people in common. Okay. We can talk about that. And Oh yeah, this is easy. We've just built like a nice kind of history for ourselves. Um, just based on, you know, just getting deep. I mean, actors tend to do this. You tend, you tend to know, 
someone's deepest secrets very fast, but you don't know like if they have a brother or where they were born, um, you know? Right. I was talking to um, John Slattery about what it was like being, you know, cause I think he's the only, Oh, I guess there are a few other exceptions, but he's, he's the um, only actor who sort of like repeats through all the episodes, I think. Um, and I was like, what was it like being a minority on the set? Basically surrounded by all these women and these women behind the camera and John, you know, who like loves Davi and grew up with all these sisters. He's like, Oh, great. Loved it. Um, but I'm wondering, uh, for you, you know, is, is, is there a difference being on a set, you know, surrounded by all these, these women? Um, I mean, I've been very lucky that I've, I've now through my company been able to make a couple things. Uh, where I get to go to set with mostly women, whether it was Pitch Perfect Films or Charlie's Angels. and But this was working in a female ensemble, first of all, this caliber is is so incredible and so fun. And I think also we all, we were all just amazed at the subject matter and the parallels to our current moment in time. And really, you know, I remember being in the room when Rose, did the glorious speech about, you know, when is it our time? You know, how, how long do we have to wait? And thinking about, God, this speech was, these words were said before I was born. Yeah. And I still feel that way. Yeah. And, you know, we were all kind of emotional, like thinking about that, that, that day. And so just things like that, just having that support of people who just get it, they get it totally. You don't have to try and explain it. It's unsaid. There's a lot of unspoken understanding amongst us. And we just had a, we had an amazing time. I loved working on this show. So, so, so much. I, I gotta say, I loved your episode and I just rewatched it again. And then I cried at the end and I was like a little embarrassed cause it's like three o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday or whatever. And I was just like openly crying in my house for like the death of a Republican party that I never like cared about in the first place. It's hardcore to think about the wave and the effect of, of what the evangelical right has done to our political system. It's really interesting. And again, they're a minority, you know, right. with big platforms. Exactly. And you hear there are like names you hear in this episode, like Dick Cheney or Jerry Falwell or whatever. And you're like, Oh my God, it's just, it's been happening for so long. It's also, look, it's also so much about people's experiences. It's the other thing like Jill and her and Bill, you know, they, they were not, they were not particularly traditional. They were not nearly as traditional as Phyllis's household. Right. Right, right. And so um, they, you know, they were much more about like economic, they were moderate on all levels. And I think they also had experience. They lived in DC. They lived in cities. They volunteered with different communities. It's, It's like those little things of like, you meet people in life and suddenly you can't just in your policies, put them in some corner because like you've never dealt with anyone like that. You don't know those people and those people just seem, you can just categorize them as something. And I think it's just so interesting to me to watch. Our side is like flush with diversity and the other side, not so much. All right. So that does it for uh, this week's episode of Still Watching Mrs. America, our coverage of Jill. We will be back next week with Bella and the wonderful Margot Martindale and all our many, many hats. Uh, Richard, until then, where can folks find you? Well, I'm not going to actually go deer hunting because I don't believe in it. But And also, I can't go outside. But I don't know, maybe like a deer hunting video game? Is that bad? Ooh. <laughs>
duck hunter maybe <laughs> sure yeah yeah um but i also will be tweeting at rylaz um a lot of tweets about zelda I'm playing a lot of zelda um and writing reviews as always on vf.com uh joanna where will you be until next week uh i'll be on vanityfair.com you can find me on twitter at uh joe wrote this but most of all i think i'll be uh running the twins to their tennis practice because i know certainly my husband won't do it so there you go 